Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to pick up there in verse 12 in a Bible study I've entitled, Trials Come to Us All. Trials Come to Us All. Solomon, a man of great wisdom, he wrote to us and he said, everything under the sun, S-U-N, is vanity and emptiness. That's his testimony. When he comes to the end of his life, and he's writing to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's writing his, his book, Ecclesiastes. He tells us over and over again, everything under the sun is empty. Money, wisdom, women, possessions, power, prestige. He had them all. Not only did he have them all, but he had them in abundance. You could say that Solomon lived the kind of life that many people aspire to today. People spend their whole lives, even some wasting their whole lives, trying to have everything that Solomon was given in abundance. But as he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he comes to this wonderful conclusion. He says this, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so yes, everything under the sun, S-U-N, is emptiness and vanity. But everything under the sun or in the sun, S-O-N, is precious and wonderful. Things really change when you're born again. Your life is completely transformed. The Bible says that you and I as born again believers are new creations in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the beginning of that ongoing transformation starts the moment you're born again. And all of these things begin to have purpose and meaning. The worldly wisdom and money and women and possessions and relationships and power and all the things that may seek to fulfill you, you begin to have the perspective of how God wants to use them in his kingdom. Now, at first glance, when you hear that, you're like, okay, lad, I get it. Everything in Jesus is precious and it's good and it's wonderful. But then some will hear that and have some hesitancy. You go, wait a minute, Ed. Are you saying to me that as a Christian, everything's going to be great, everything's going to be wonderful? What about broken dreams? That doesn't sound very precious. What about pain? What about what the doctor just said? What about how my mom treats me? What about my shattered life? Just got diagnosed with cancer. How is that precious in the sun? I have delays, denials, and difficulties. What about when we face death? What about when we see death as an untimely thing and we don't at all like it? They come to us in the sun, S-O-N. They come to us as believers. And we learn, even today, in verse 19 of chapter 4, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. 
Yes, suffering and difficulty comes in the will of God, in the Son, to believers. I mean, you think of Joseph spending 13 years in prison, falsely accused, and that was after being thrown into a pit by his own brothers. Joseph went from the pit to the prison, ultimately to the palace, but God was at work. I think of Moses, spent 40 years of his life, a third of his life on the backside of the desert, alone, isolated, nowhere near where he believed God would have him. He, he felt and sensed this calling of God to deliver the people, to be a servant to God. He, he chose affliction with the people of Israel instead of all of the, the beautiful gifts that would come to him uh, in his position in Egypt, and yet 40 years in the backside of the desert. And God was using the desert in his life. Listen, some of you may be in the desert right now. And God is using the desert experience in your life. Now Moses got there because of his own sin. I mean, he take, took things into his own hands. And, and there he finds himself in a place of isolation, in a place of humility. I think one of the greatest gifts that God can give to you and me is humility. To be in a place of being, of, of being usable to him. And it doesn't come in pride and arrogance. It comes in humility. And Moses is in the desert being humbled by God. God is working. God's working in your desert experience too. You might be in the pit listening on the radio in prison right now. God is at work. He hasn't abandoned you, no matter how you feel. I think of those young men that dedicated their lives from an early age, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know how their life begins? Their life begins in the sun, you know, by looking forward to Messiah. Their life begins following God, being raised in the ways of God. And what was their reward at a very young age? They were kidnapped. They were removed from their homeland. They were brought into the palace to be reprogrammed, to be used, perhaps even abused. They were young, thriving, wonderful men of God. And when given the chance to stand for the things of God against an evil, wicked ruler, they did. And what was their reward for obedience? Well, he not only threw them in the hot, fiery furnace, but before that, he lit it up seven times hotter. We have it wrong when we think that we're going to be protected from every pain and every difficulty. Exactly opposite happens. You and I suffer more for following Christ, not less. You have all the things of living in the world, and then you have those things that come to you uniquely as a follower of Christ. God is working. And this is so important to remember as we come to this section of scripture. Peter's telling us that there's no way whatsoever that any of us in this room connected to this Bible study in any way. And you can think of all the ways that a Bible study goes forth. You forward it on Facebook, you listening to it on the app, you're burned a CD for a friend that still has a CD player. It doesn't matter. However you're receiving this, watch it on YouTube. You have to understand something. There's no way you can sidestep the pain and suffering of this world. You don't get a pass because you're a believer. We all face pain and problems and sorrows. So with that in mind, notice in verse 12 what Peter tells those suffering saints, what he tells them then and what he tells us now. He says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Now pull back for a second and understand. Peter's saying, don't think it's strange considering the trial it's gonna, you're, you're going to face while they're in the midst of a big trial, the biggest trial they've ever faced in their lives. 
perhaps even the largest loss in their lives, as they're on the run, as Nero is after them, blaming them for destroying the city, burning it down, as, as their family and friends are being burned alive in the gardens. He says, I don't want you to think it's strange. It's going to get worse. And I don't want you to just think it's unusual. It's normal. Strange. If you like to write in your Bible, circle that word strange. From the original language, it speaks to us of astonished. Don't be astonished when things get harder. Another word you could write next to it is surprised. Don't be surprised. Another word, don't be struck. You know, kind of like when you're struck in the face and you're just like all in shock. Don't be shocked when things get harder. Don't be shocked when difficult things come. Dozens and dozens of times this word is used in the New Testament. But that's the problem, isn't it? One of the biggest problems when it comes to suffering, in addition to the pain of the situation itself, is that we do think it's strange. We do think it's strange. We think it's strange that we would go through it. We pray for a lot of people in their pain and suffering. And we listen to their story and maybe even in the back of our minds we think, yeah, I can understand that. I can see how you're going through that. I can see why. But when it happens to us, it's a shock. You know, you're looking at someone's life and you think, you come to this conclusion, you say, you know what, I don't think I could ever experience what they're going through. I don't ever want to experience it. And, and that's a good expression to have and a good desire to have. I wouldn't want you to experience those types of things either. But then when it does happen to you, it shocks you. You're like, I never thought it would happen. I mean, that's the language we use. I never thought I'd ever experience, I never thought it would be this hard. I never thought it would hurt this much. Those are all expressions of doing what Peter says not to do here, thinking it's strange. He doesn't say, don't feel it's strange. He says, don't think it's strange. You're going to go through all sorts of emotions and feelings when you're hurting. And what the enemy is going to be using that situation to do is to mess with your head. Because he knows probably more than we really believe and live that what, what you believe will dictate how you behave. That your behavior stems directly from what you believe. And if you can get us off our game, you know, and get us losing our equilibrium and off balance, then we'll have some weird beliefs. We'll start believing things differently than what God has revealed. It seems strange to us that the life that we've lived, we get to a place where, hey man, after all that we've done, all that we've sacrificed, all the service we've given to God, that he would have let this happen to me? It seems strange to us that we're living for God and we're suffering, but then my neighbor, he hates God and it seems like he never suffers. It seems strange that, man, why doesn't God just stop it? I mean, David, the psalmist, really wrestled with this himself. In Psalm 73, verse 12, he says, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I not keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Psalm 73, it's from the New Living. Did I do all this for nothing? That's his thought. Perhaps it's yours sometimes too. But we live in the real world. And in the real world, good things happen to bad people. And bad things happen to good people. But you know, bad things happen to bad people too. Because pain is a part of life. So God says, 
You could even hear this, couldn't you? you could, I'm sure you could hear this in the beginning of the previous challenging year that we all shared globally. You could just hear heaven say, don't think this strange. I'm still on the throne. Don't think it's strange what you're about to go, to, go through. Don't think it's strange what you're going to face. As if some strange thing happened to you. Now it's different, but it wasn't strange. Don't be astonished. You know, it makes me very angry. So much so that I don't, I have all these channels on my antenna TV, you know, blocked of all the, most of the stations that have all the health and wealth guys on there teaching that, man, you know, you're never going to, if you give to my ministry, you'll never have pain, never have suffering. You know, it ticks me off. These guys are not teaching the truth. These gals are not teaching the truth. You're going to get sick. Everyone listening to me right now is going to die of their last sickness. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Nobody's going to sidestep that. And no giving to a ministry, no 30-fold, none of that nonsense is true. Your giving is out of a desire to please God in a response to his love for you, not some pressure or guilt that comes upon you. We live in the real world. And the real world is filled with real needs, real suffering, and real sorrows. If we were to do a little survey of everybody walking in the room and they wrote down what they're going through right now, even on a scale of one to 10, even, the one, even those that might say right now life is really good, but there's a few things. And I read them one after another, just in this room, just this service. I believe some of you would be shocked of some of the heaviness that's in the room right now. Heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. You know, not many people are talking about it. They're not wearing it on their sleeve. It's not their identity. They're learning how to endure through the pain and through the suffering. Some of you have been carrying things for years and years and years. So some of you have been battling the same chronic illness for years and years and years and years. Some of you have been praying for your kids years and years and years and years. Some of you have been barely making it financially or sometimes not making it at all for years and years and years. We could go list after list after list after list after list, just in the room. We wouldn't have to make things up. It would just be among us, the cares and concerns that we carry. And I see things, I hear things, I speak to people almost every day. The kind of things, and this is where one of the ways you can pray for your pastors here, well, you could pray for your leaders here, the lay leaders, you can pray for those that are standing in in biblical discipleship. You, you just hear things here all day, every day, all throughout the week that'll start to discourage you. Like you could be, so so be so encouraged, so built up, but then you start to carry burdens with one another. You start to hear stories. Man, before you know it, you'll go home exhausted and discouraged. And you could feel that way watching the news. When you're watching the news and, and you're just like, man, another one, another child hurt. Another car ripped off. You know, that was somebody's car. I was watching just last night. Somebody's moving to Colorado. They've got their moving van and a car in the back and somebody ripped them off at the hotel. Their whole life. Taken. Fortunately, they got most of it back, but what traumatic, what a traumatic experience. Or, you know, the big thing happening right now are people waking up in the morning and their catalytic converter's been cut out of their car. You know, those that are strung out on drugs, I remember the time they came to the property here and they stole all the wires from our, from our parking lot twice. Twice. What did they get for it? 20 bucks. 
And it's like, man, Lord. And those, you know, are just the tip of the iceberg. And so God says, church, your faith in Jesus. Peter says, your faith in Jesus. Don't think it's strange. As if some strange thing happened to you. It is normal Christian living to suffer pain and to walk with difficulty. It's not strange that you're suffering as a Christian. It's not. It's not strange that the world thinks the church is not essential. That's not strange. That's normal. It's not strange that those in positions of authority would try to make it hard for Christians to come together. It's not strange that there be resistance after time, after time, after time. That's normal. It's normal Christian living that God meets you in your struggle. 40 years on the backside of the desert, God never left Moses one time. From the moment that Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, the revelation of his presence was with them all the way. God knew. Now, it's a difficult thing, of course, but God knew about the palace. He knew what he was going to do. And that's one of the truths about Jesus. Remember when he was feeding the thousands? He told them to go get the supplies to get ready to feed them. And what did he say? The Bible says in John's gospel that Jesus was testing him because he already knew what he was going to do. I love that. It's something I come back to constantly. I may not know what God's doing in my life, but Jesus already knows what he wants to do with my life. It's been mapped out for me. It's not strange. I like how the New Living Translation translates this. It says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Or the message translation, the paraphrase, he really nailed this one. Uh, Eugene Peterson, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he wrote, friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Isn't that good? Such a good paraphrase. Don't jump to the conclusion like God isn't there. But, verse 13, he says, rejoice. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. But if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Let's just pause for a second. Strange trials, making you think it's strange, difficult, hard, astonished. And then Peter says, don't think it's strange. Nothing strange is happening. Instead of thinking it's strange, I want you to rejoice that you're suffering. That's, that's not easy to do. I, I, I don't even... I don't even think it's possible to do in the human realm. I'm not, it's not possible. I mean, I mean, obviously I could probably fake it and say, oh, yay, I'm going through trial, yippee. But not mean it. Like to me, it's impossible. This is like an impossibility. Hey, I want you to, when you're going through something that's so strange and so hard, I want you to rejoice. That's what I want you to do. I want you to be happy about it. I want you to just, oh, yes, God is doing a work. Yes, I'm in the pit. I don't know if I'm ever going to get out. Yes, I got sold. Yes, I was accused of a fal falsely of a crime. Oh, yes, yay, yay, yay. But, but his point is not in the circumstances. His point is God has brought you to the end of yourself so you can turn to him. That's where true joy comes from. True joy doesn't come because you're in a trial. True joy comes from because now God has brought you to a place where you look to him. 
And I love the fact that God would lay before us an impossibility and a challenge so that we know that we are following Jesus in our sufferings. I mean, we're not going to be scourged. You know, every Good Friday, what do we do? We talk about the scourging, the beating of Jesus. Every Good Friday, it's the same, the same message generally that we cover on what happened on that very dark and difficult day. William Barclay writes, and I quote, Roman scourging was a terrible torture. And that we'll just put, I'll just put the name of Jesus in this because this is what he experienced. The author didn't do that, but I'm going to do it. Roman scourging was a terrible torture. Jesus would have been stripped. His hands were, would have been tied behind him, tied to a post. Jesus' back would have bent over double, conveniently exposing himself to the beating, to the lash. The lash itself was a long leather thong studded at intervals with sharpened pieces of bone and pellets of lead. Such scourging always preceded crucifixion and it reduced the naked body to strips of raw flesh and inflamed and bleeding wheels. Men died under it and men lost their reason under it and few remained conscious to end it. They, most did not stay awake for the ending of scourging. And that's the suffering that's mentioned here. I want you to rejoice because you're identifying with Jesus. It's a lot easier to identify with Jesus in water baptism. <laughs> and God commands us to identify in water baptism. He, he wants you to walk into the waters of death and then go down under the water to be buried like Christ, to come up out of the water as being risen with Christ. And you do that publicly, water baptism as a believer, so that you can identify publicly with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus to say unequivocally, without any hesitation, that you have decided to follow Jesus. It's one of the first things a new believer will do. But also there's identification with Jesus in his suffering. Not a suffering that was brought upon yourself. Jesus didn't bring the suffering upon himself. Not in the way you would think. Like He was love incarnate in person. He was the epitome of love. He never sinned. He only loved and served and cared. And in that way, he brought it upon himself. He came to die. So your suffering isn't because you're strange. Your suffering is because you're identifying with Jesus. And when you step back and say, you know, my Lord suffered. The word here in verse 13, he says, rejoice to the extent that you partake. That word partake is very important. Next to it, you could write the word fellowship. You know why? This is the word koinonia. This is the word in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the early church had together. They, the word literally means to share in common. When, when we have fellowship together, we're sharing in the life of Jesus together. We're talking about the things of God together. You know, we have a cup of coffee. Just sitting down at the table with a cup of coffee isn't fellowship. But when we begin to talk about the things of God, that's fellowship. When we begin to share our lives with one another, that's fellowship. When we begin, as you were doing earlier, some of you prayed to some of the points, but I'm sure in our groups tonight, some of you prayed for one another. You shared in fellowship. After our time uh, is ended with Bible studies, some of you go downstairs, you'll share a cup of coffee together, you'll stay up here and pray with one another, you'll encourage one another in the Lord. Well, listen, you can also share in common with the sufferings of Jesus. It's not strange, it's normal. 
It's normal. And we usually use the word fellowship in koinonia to talk about all the fun things and happy things. But fellowship in koinonia can also be used to describe our sharing in trials. That's why you'll find yourself surrounded with people that have similar trials that you do. <laughs> Going through similar things that you do. Right? Remember that's in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we, have, we serve the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations. So what? We can comfort others in their tribulation. And don't you find a connection with someone that's gone through something similar that you have? It's an automatic connection. It's not that you can't comfort and encourage other people that you never experienced it. That happens a lot. But when you've gone through something, you, your heart is drawn to other people going through that same thing. You lived it. You feel it. It's visceral for you. And so you'll find yourself often reaching out to people that are going through what you've gone through or what you're currently going through, and there's a true fellowship. There, there's a true sharing of life. There, there's a true sharing of emotion. And there's a true connection that's deeper than just the surface level. And it's true, God will send storms our way, difficulties our way. And he not only allows them, sometimes he literally sends them so that he might develop in us a deep faith, reveal to us the level of our faith, so that he might create in us a deeper trust in him, so that no longer are we living with our lips, but with our lives. You know, one of the tragedies in this last year, it's a tragedy. As the church has been shaken, and the church is being refined, many people didn't make it. What was revealed through this last year is that their faith was fake. It wasn't real, and they didn't make it through. That's sad. That's sad for me as a brother in the Lord, that they were so close. They were so close, and then this huge trial just revealed to them, you know, I, nah, that's not for me. I don't really want to follow God. Now, a very positive thing happened during that time, too. It stirred a lot of people up to go, you know what? I'm not right with God. I got to get my life right. I need to find myself back in a relationship thriving in the things of God. But that's what trials will do. Trials reveal in us. They don't create. The only thing they create in us is a deeper dependence upon God. What they really do is reveal the current condition of our life. And sometimes we're really encouraged. Sometimes we're really disappointed. But when we rejoice and we look up to the Lord, he meets us where we are. In the wilderness, in the midst of their trial, listen, God provided for the nation of Israel. In the wilderness wandering, God supplied them. God is at work. Your trial's not strange, and God is with you in the midst of it. Even in the midst of great suffering, God remained faithful. And that's his promise to us in times of trouble. I mean, you think that the, the reason why the nation of Israel, the generation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness throughout the book of Numbers is because they failed to believe God. It was because of their sinful failure but did God abandon them? Yes or no? Absolutely not. No, he was with them. He provided, check this out. God is so faithful to them in their rebellion that, that he provided clothing for them that never wore out. I mean, an amazing, miraculous thing. Now, they might have complained and go, I'm tired of this, I'm tired of this, I wish we had a new one. But that's just their sinful nature. God provided, they never had to worry about it. He gave them shade during the day, light at night, and every single day, he provided for them six days out of the week. He provided for them food that gave them all the nutrients that were necessary to endure a lifetime 
uh, or you know, really a whole lifetime in the wilderness. God is faithful. And on that sixth day, remember with the manna, he gave them enough for the day of rest as well to help. God wants to help you. Listen, this is so cool. God wants to help you obey him. He's not trying to test you so you fail. He's willing to help you all along the way because his goal is really your goal. And that's to be in right relationship with him. He'll help you obey him. Say, okay, look, I want you to rest on the seventh day. I know it's counterintuitive, but I want you to rest. So here's what I want you to do. On the sixth day, get enough manna for today and tomorrow. Every other day, just get enough for the day. But on the sixth day, I'm going to make enough for you so that you don't have to work tomorrow. He says, I'm going to set you up even in the midst of your pain. And don't forget, we think of the wilderness wandering, we only focus on one generation, the unbeliefs. And it wasn't really that many people. It was just the spies that came back that messed up everybody's head and they all believed them and they all got fearful with them because fear can spread like a wildfire. But remember there were their kids and in some cases their grandkids that suffered too. And what did they do except they were born into that family? They didn't do anything. They weren't the generation that denied God or lived in fear. They were just born into that family. You know, a lot of suffering comes just from your position in life. The family you were born into. The difficulty that has visited you. It's just a condition of the life that you have that God, you know, brought those. You would think, you know, it's just not fair. It's not right. You know, it's, it hurts. You're right. But there was those succeeding generations, you know, where their feet ended up. Dry land through the Jordan into the promised land. The Lord took care of him. He'll take care of you too. Don't think it's strange is where Peter is. Don't think it's strange. Notice verse 15 now. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Jump down to verse 19. Therefore, those of us who suffer according to the will of God, let them commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So notice at the back of verse 14, I want to miss that. On their part, the suffering that, the, that, that was happening from the government, from Rome to the believers there, for them, they were blaspheming God the way they were treating believers. Nero was a blasphemer, a liar, and it was evident that he was not in right relationship. But notice, those that were suffering, God was glorified. God is glorified in your suffering. If you suffer the right way, God is not glorified in suffering the wrong way. And notice, he gives an example. Don't suffer as a sinner. <laughs> Don't suffer as a murderer and go, oh, woe is me. I'm suffering because I'm a Christian. No, you're suffering because you're a murderer. And then he says a thief. And then he says an evildoer. And I don't want you to miss this. I don't want to develop this tonight, but you just consider, maybe I'll develop it. Murderer, thief, evildoer, and then notice what he puts on an equal level, busybody. There's probably far more busybodies here among us than there are evildoers. And that's a serious sin. Getting up involved in other people's business when... It's none your business. None. It's not even partially your business. It's none. You don't want to suffer that way. You don't want to be in that position. You don't want to suffer the wrong way. 
That tells me in suffering and difficulty, I can make things easier, I can make things harder. But I'm gonna suffer. It's almost like you could say, you can go the easy way, you can go the hard way, but you're gonna suffer. And it's really bad when we bring it upon ourselves. But in verse 16, when you're suffering for righteousness, don't be ashamed. You're suffering because you're a believer, don't be ashamed. You're suffering because you're doing the right thing, don't be ashamed at that. Embrace it. You know, you can't embrace, oh, you know, why are you in trouble? Oh, you know, I was a busybody. Why'd you get fired? Oh, because I stole from the company. No, you can't glory in that. That's shameful. But what's not shameful is when you take a stand for righteousness and your boss calls you in, you think you're getting a raise, and they say, yeah, here, here's a check. Oh, great, my, I got a raise. No, it's your final check. Well, why? Well, we don't need to tell you. But it was really because you were a believer. Because you're serving God. Not because you were weird or doing wrong things, just because you took a stand for righteousness. Yes, taking a stand for righteousness comes at, often at a cost. And the real question for believers in the age in which we're living right now is are you willing to pay the price? That's the question. Like you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story, you Bible students, you know, they're there, they're the king, king of the, the ruler of the known world. It was simple, it was easy. All they had to do was bow down to the image. What's the big deal? Bow down. You could even fake bow down. You know, you could, you could in your mind, you can think of how you're justifying it all. You know what? Nah, I, in my heart, I'm not bowing down, but I'll bow down just so I can have life. I'll, I'll bow down. And they said, no, that is false worship. And it's almost as if they said, everyone here will bow down. We will not bow down, O king. And then you know the story. They told the king, and I'll paraphrase, hey, we trust God. God will deliver us. He knows how to do it. But even if he doesn't, we'll be with him. So either way, we win. You can throw us in the fiery furnace, king, but we're not bowing down. We're not entering into false worship. And if they were making a movie of that, if you and I were making a movie of that, they would be the heroes. Yay, yay, yay. And then lightning comes and takes out Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach. They become the next kings. Because that's kind of what we expect. You do the right thing, you get promoted. You do the right thing, you get... No, that's not what happened. Nebuchadnezzar continued to be the ruler and they were thrown in the fiery furnace. But you know, it was in the fiery furnace that that one like the son of man showed up, loosing their bonds. Like Jesus shows up in the fire. He's always with you, but you really experience him in the fire. You have a special experience. And it's a good thing when you suffer for righteousness. It's a good thing. It's a good thing when you choose to do what's right, no matter the cost. It's not always a good thing when you try to get out from under difficulties instead of receiving it as from the Lord. It's something you really need to pray through. He says, don't don't you suffer, none of you, and I say that along with Peter, don't let anyone listening to me, don't suffer as a rank sinner. Don't do it. Just choose not to sin. You're going to suffer. Just don't let it be for choosing rank rebellious sin, church. And if you suffer because you're a believer, don't be ashamed. Glorify God. Know that Jesus went before you. The time has come now. Notice verse 17. The time has come. I saved it for last. For judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? There are times of discipline in the house of God. There are times of discipline for you and me. Sometimes we interpret or we misinterpret suffering where our suffering is actually the chastening hand of God in our lives. Training, discipling, and just disciplining us so that we might follow him. Sometimes trouble comes as a means to chasten and discipline us. You look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again. You look at Nebuchadnezzar. You look at the believers here and the wicked leadership of Nero. And you go, that's not fair, it's not fair. I can't believe it. Nero's on the throne. It's not fair, it's not fair. No, Nero's there to chasten you. You may be unhappy with the current political leader in your own life. He's there to chasten you. Oh, but it would be so much better with this other leader. It may not as be as good as you think because God wants to train you and chasten you. Maybe it has nothing to do with a political leader. You have a boss right now that it is God's will. She's your boss to chasten you. Well, I don't like it. I'm getting another job then you may just be running away from the chastening hand of God. And guess what? God has a boss at your next job too. I remember one day my son Eddie came home from uh, Chick-fil-A as he was working at Chick-fil-A and he was talking about a difficulty there and he just had enough of it. It was a hard situation and it was a particular boss. And one of his options was, I'm gonna get another job, dad. I'm gonna get another job, dad. And I get it. I'm like, well, Eddie, you can get another job if you like. But I want you to know that the boss you're having a problem with right now is at your next job. They have a different name, uh, different responsibility, but that boss has been put there by the will of God for you, son. God wants to teach you some things you can't learn in the house here. He wants to teach you some things that mom and dad were not able. He's taking you to another level. And I know it's hard. We've all had them. We've all had your boss, I told my son. We all had your boss, man. Seems to, <laughs> they seem to work at a lot of places. But God has allowed that person to be in your life to train you and discipline you to follow him in the good times and the bad. Not everything's going to go your way. And to think that some of you may be a boss yourself, you, want to, you like to use that, you may be in a place of management position. I wonder, you're someone that God is using in their lives to chasten them or to bring them to a place of the end of themselves or to bring them to a place where they can have faith. Like God, nothing's wasted with God. But I, you have to remember, church, judgment doesn't begin out there. Judgment begins right here. And it's not even right here. It's in your home, in your room you rent, in your condo, in your town home. Judgment begins in your house. It begins with you. How easy and convenient it is to have judgment on everyone else's house, but God wants you to, and is it no surprise that in the same context of what Peter's writing to these believers, he talks about murder, evildoer, busybody, which a busybody is someone that gets involved in other people's houses. A busybody is someone that gets involved in other people's business. They get up in other people's situations. And God says, don't you, Peter says, don't you suffer being a busybody. Oh, by the way, judgment begins in the house of God. Get your own house in order, church. God is ready. He wants to help you get your house in order. That's not just a strong exhortation. He's ready to give you enough manna on Friday to take care of Saturday. He's ready to help you get your house in order. He wants you to. 
We're, we're living on the cusp of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to take as many people with us as possible. We want a testimony of the love, the grace, the mercy of Jesus. We want to be known as a church of why we, who we love, how we love. We don't want to be known by what we're all against. We want to be experts in all the darkness. The Bible says to be innocent of evil, be excellent in what is good. Get your house in order. And that's just a, a word for someone. Like it's just get your house in order. I'll tell you, we as a pastoral team, we as a staff, lay leaders, we want our house in order because we want to be used in these last days. We're taking it serious ourselves. We want our house in order. We want our home in order. And again, it's not a perfect home. Don't think, don't misunderstand me or the Bible. Getting your house in order doesn't mean you have no problems, no issues, no sin, no, no. like we're, we're normal. We live, we live in a real world with real problems. We have flesh. We make mistakes. We make some sinful mistakes. But your house in order is one that honors God. One that puts God first. One that abides in Christ. One that seeks out his strength and his wisdom. One that, man, you know, there's a distinction between you and the world. A real house that's in order is different from the world. And judgment begins. Don't be surprised when judgment comes to the house of God. It begins, it's, you might want to mark these words in verse 17. It begins with us first. Can't you hear the echoes of those suffering under Nero, that that's all that's on their lips. Nero this, Nero that, Rome this, Rome that. We already know that that was happening during the first century when Jesus came. We're only about 30 plus years from the time that Jesus died here in First Peter, just 30 or so years. And, and the, one of the reasons why Messiah was missed when Jesus came is they believed, they were so upset with Rome, so upset with the oppression of Rome that they interpreted Messiah to come as a conquering king to overthrow Rome. And when he didn't overthrow Rome, everybody dismissed him as a false Messiah. They couldn't see him coming as a suffering servant. They couldn't see the places in Isaiah. They couldn't see the places in Psalms that spoke of his crucifixion before it was invented. They could only see themselves and the oppression under which they lived, and the disagreements that they had, and the hardships. And it was hard living under Roman rule. The taxation under Roman rule was over 50%. The Romans had absolute authority over their subjects. Jesus would so much would say when he came in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, I know when they're going to ask you for your cloak, I know. That's what the Romans, that's what the soldiers did. They had absolutely authority over your life. They could kill you if they wanted to. So when a soldier came or said, give me your cloak, give them everything you have. Give their tunic too. Don't resist that. When they want you to carry a burden, go the extra mile. This is, it's almost like Jesus saying, it's going to be hard. So make it easier by cooperating and doing more than they ask. So you can honor God. He didn't say, resist. You go, Ed, of course he did. No, he said when somebody slaps you on the cheek, <laughs> don't resist an evil person. Give to them your other cheek also. And he's really speaking to the heart of the matter of where will we be in tough times. That's really what he's speaking on a personal level. That's what he's speaking to each one of us. That's what he's telling me. Ed, well, how do you want to be in tough times? Do you want to be close to me? Or do you want to be far from me? Judgment always begins here first in our lives. The choice today is so wonderful in our lives. Trials are going to be a part of your life. 
But with every trial, we're given a choice or two or three. We can give up and let the enemy defeat us. Or we consider that trial, we can consider it as appointed and allowed by God in our lives to work in a wonderful way. We can commit our souls, like verse 19 says, we can commit our souls to a faithful creator. He's very faithful. Now jot this down, you might want to look at it later, but I was listening to a Bible study many years ago, so much so I wrote this down, of how a pastor was teaching on the subjects of trials and defeat. This brother was actually going through some major back surgeries, one after another, after another, after another. He has since passed away and gone home to be with the Lord, but he was teaching in the midst of one of his constant surgeries that never fixed the problem, always made it harder, Uh, and actually the brother pastor in Southern California actually ended up passing away after another back surgery in the hospital. It was just a chronic, horrible condition in his life. And as he was teaching on trials in the midst of it, he said three things we need to do in the midst of trials. You want to jot them down. Three things we need to do. First, he uses Moses as an example in Exodus chapter 14. And he says, one of the things we need to do, number one, is stand still and see the salvation of God. That's what it says in Exodus, stand still. Don't move, stand your ground, let God show you who he really is. Number two, he used David as an example in Psalm 46, verse 10. He says, number one, like Moses, stand still. Number two, like David, be still. Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. In other words, stop talking and start listening in the midst of your trial. Stand still, be still, and then finally with Naomi, With Naomi in Ruth chapter three, verse 18, he uses Naomi as an example to sit still. Stand still, be still, sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. Sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. One of the worst decisions you can make is to make a big life decision in the midst of crisis. Wait on the Lord for direction wait for your heart to be healed. Wait before you make a big life decision in the midst of tragedy and difficulty. And that's my prayer for us as we face what we face, when we face it, stand still, be still, sit still as God is working in your life. Amen? So good. I love this section. So Father, thank you for the word that Peter's given to us. I thank you, God, for my brother who's now in your presence that gave me this so many years ago and just sat with my heart, Lord. Stand, be, sit still before you. And I just think of the glassy sea of Galilee, how still it can be, how how calm, beautiful it can be. I think of too when it's all very tumultuous and scary and cold and windy and rainy. And I think back to those times where it was warm and dry and quiet and still. I pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit in abundance upon us. Trials come to us all. They're hard for us all. And Lord, forgive us. Maybe tonight you just want to ask for forgiveness, church. I just think, you know, i just asking God to forgive me for the times I haven't stood still and wait. I haven't... St- be still and know that he's God. I've taken things into my own hands. I've made things worse in my life. 
And I just ask God for your forgiveness that you would hear the prayers of your saints tonight. Like in our relationship with you, God, our desire is to please you and honor you. And we can be so fleshly and so human and so self-centered, especially in trials, Lord. I just get all of our attention on ourselves. And I thank you for your grace and your patience with us. And may you truly be glorified in all that we're facing. May you truly be glorified in all that you've allowed to come our way. May you truly be glorified in the difficulties that we face, that we might learn to surrender and submit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.